But I don't, I really don't have any regrets. I really don't. I've, I've lived exactly how I've wanted to. I've tried my hardest every single time. I didn't win the matches that maybe I should have always won. Or, but I really gave it my all. So that for me is enough. Hello everybody, welcome back to the Body Serve. I'm Jonathan. And I'm James. Episode 292 will be a lot of... Well, not a lot of good news. We'll be in the weeds with some not-so-nice stuff and also some boring stuff. <laughs> boring. Every time. Every time we want to talk about money and business and politics in tennis, you say it's boring. And then people say, oh, I'm glad you covered that. It's just a disclaimer that it may not be a super messy episode. You know, it's not mm. a lot of fun stuff to talk about. Wow. So now that everybody has turned off the episode, uh, uh, just a, a bit of a trigger warning. We will be talking about domestic abuse. It's not all doom and gloom. To start, thanks again to everybody who donated to our GoFundMe. We've officially closed it again. Uh, we're in the process of sending stuff out so if you've donated 75 and above please send us your address don't assume that because you've sent an address before that we will automatically send it to the same address because we need to know that you're still there we're still getting mail from people who lived here like five ten years ago i hope that person has paid their uh their highway toll because that's going straight to collections many things are in collections at this point <laughs> The week following the Australian Open, uh, tennis was again all over the place. We had WTA tournaments in France and Thailand. The men were doing Davis Cup. You know, I don't really follow Davis Cup that closely, so there's not going to be a lot of DC content on here. Let's start with Alicia Parks, who was on a wonderful win streak in main draws, lost an Australian Open qualifying, and bounced back with her first career title in Lyon. Beating Caroline Garcia in the final in straight sets. No less. Beating the hometown favorite. Now, Alicia finished last year winning two consecutive 125 series tournaments. She was a big breakout pick early this year. Folks were super excited about what she was going to do. Goes all the way to Australia, loses in qualifying. And then here we are again. She's back in main draws, back winning with this aggressive game. From 150 in November, she's now ranked... 51. There was a lot of excitement on Twitter about this win, and it seems like a lot of folks are ready to join this bandwagon. As always, we caution uh, a little bit of patience with young players. I mean, she's shown uh, a great aptitude and skill on indoor courts. Let's see how that translates to other surfaces, and those that are not covered by a roof. Okay. That said, I did pick her as my breakout candidate this year. <laughs> In Hua Hin, Julin beat Lacey Tsarenko. I watched several YouTube videos about how to pronounce the name of that uh, region in Thailand, and there uh, is some controversy, just so you know. Also, I know I didn't get the tones right, so tried our best. Serenko is coming back from these chronic elbow problems. She started the week ranked uh, 136, and she played somebody else who was facing some chronic injury problems in the semifinal. Bianca Andreescu had a great week until that semifinal. She had to retire, uh, but Serenko had a lot of nice things to say about Bianca, called her, quote, a must-see on tour because of her variety. Julin, if you recall is the player who beat Venus Williams in Auckland in her second round match. Venus gave her all she could handle and then made it all the way to the fourth round at the Australian Open, beating two seeds, one of them being Maria Sakkari. So her momentum is continuing. And Zhu was also the runner-up in doubles at this tournament. Over in Davis Cup, I know I said we don't we didn't follow much of Davis Cup last week. But Stan Wawrinka, at the ripe young age of 36, I believe, 37 possibly, 
At least 37. Is a Davis Cup hero. He wins the deciding singles rubber against Germany. Uh, Switzerland beats Germany 3-2. He beat Daniel Altmaier. Zverev 1-1, lost one. And Mark andrea Husler for Switzerland actually won two singles matches. I mean, he's the real hero of this time because that guy beat Stan very easily in the first match. (laughs) South Korea beating Belgium is a a huge result for them. And Belgium had uh, Zizou, Bergs, and Goffin for the tie. And that's pretty much all I gathered from that week. More on Davis Cup later on the business side of things. But I think the meat of this episode is about two of the big, big stories uh, off the court. Alexander Zverev, the investigation has concluded, and Nick Kyrgios' case has been dismissed. So we have two high-profile domestic violence accusations. One was a criminal case, one was not. Isn't it just wonderful how the ATP dropped this news the day after the Australian Open finished? (laughs) Yeah, that was strategic, don't you think? It was dropped very quietly as a press release, very bland statement, in a time where people are not paying attention to the tennis world. Uh, In journalism, you know, they talk about the late Friday afternoon news dump. That's what this was. And of course, Varev has taken this as a complete vindication and is just running wild with it. Yes. So to set the scene, the ATP had been conducting an investigation into the allegations against Alex Zverev for domestic violence from his former girlfriend, Olya Sharipova, uh, which were published in Racket Magazine and Slate. Um, Slate is currently being sued, I believe, in Germany for the publication. Essentially, Germany thinks they uh, violated defamation laws there, which are much stricter than they are here. The ATP has been investigating using a third party for a long time, over a year. They said that they did an exhaustive process. They spoke to the two parties involved and many other people and said there was, quote, insufficient evidence to substantiate the allegations. Therefore, no disciplinary action would be taken. Uh, My follow-up question is how could they take disciplinary action in the absence of a policy? If any action had been taken, it would have been in this clause in the ATP rulebook about conduct contrary to the integrity of the game, which is obviously very broad and ill-defined. The ATP cites, quote, conflicting statements by Sharipova, Zverev, and other interviewees, and, quote, a lack of reliable evidence and eyewitness reports. The ATP did not say Zverev did not do this. Exactly. So they have insufficient evidence to say it happened. They're not saying it didn't happen. They just don't have the evidence to make that ruling. There are people who say the ATP has no place even investigating this. I would disagree. The ATP itself says that they are obligated to investigate this. And Well, so, but still, they only investigated it after great outrage from fans and some journalists. They would oh, have yeah. they would have done absolutely nothing. Oh yeah. It was but now it's on the record that the ATP has said in writing that we had an obligation to investigate this. I don't know if that will carry forward to other instances because other instances are inevitable based on the current state of this tour. It's only a matter of time before either something else comes out of his closet or some other horrendous behavior takes place because this guy has shown a complete lack of self-control on court, even in the in the face of all these allegations and investigations going on. Case in point, him attacking the chair umpire with his racket early last year. As you said, his uh, response was, uh, I guess, reliably horrible. It was very typical to what we would expect. He said, quote, I've won two lawsuits. The investigation was without a result because there is nothing. And those are translations from the German. He harps on these lawsuits a lot. And he said, you know, I've been vindicated. I've won lawsuits on and on and on. Okay, so these were injunctions. He won an injunction to stop the publication of these stories in certain countries. That's not 
a ruling on the actual merit of the allegations. The ruling was on whether the article itself uh, allowed for the potential that Zverev was not guilty. Like, basically, the German court said the story has to make the impression that this person being accused is not definitely guilty. It's one of two things in this instance with the way he's talking about it. Either he's incredibly ignorant and struggles to put together cognitive thoughts, or he's deploying a targeted strategy, a very Trumpian strategy, whereby you can say anything repeatedly and then it'll stick. Now, he, of course, he does have crisis PR working with him. I don't know if he's adhering exactly to what they want him to say. Uh, but he said <laughs> about the case in Germany, he said, I won the case against the author and the publication, which the author is ignoring right now, which I think will have a lot of consequences for him. Is and he talking uh, about Ben? I don't know. I was going to say that you all could sort of fill in the blanks because I don't know if he's talking about the Slate story and Ben or the Racket story uh, or possibly another one that was written in German that I don't know about. But the fact that he's commenting on this supposedly open court case and claims that the author is ignoring it uh, is it stretches credulity because typically when a publication and a writer are being sued, the publication's lawyers are going to take over, and the writer shouldn't be commenting publicly on something like this. When something like this happens, in this case, this is a story that we've been talking about for, what, two years at this point? At least, right? Yeah. And everybody in tennis is aware of it. Everybody who covers tennis is aware of it. And so we, we saw the expected reactions to this news, right? One that I should have seen coming, but absolutely did not add anything to the discourse was from Christopher Clary, who said that, quote, this was a very long time coming if no charges brought elsewhere should allow foreclosure. Oh, I sort of wonder, as I often wonder with tweets like this, what was the purpose of this? You, you could have just retweeted the story. Like, uh, I think he was retweeting Stuart Fraser there. Just retweet the journalist who's reporting the story. What does that commentary serve? Uh, it was actually Simon oh, Cambers. Sorry. It's just a nothing sandwich. But what does closure mean? So he follows up with a clarification saying that he meant closure of the case, not emotional closure, which didn't read that way. If you're a writer by trade, like, you should better than that but also closer for whom right like I, I just i just don't understand there's there's this incessant urge to put a nice little ribbon on something and just say oh well this is resolved now when in fact we are left with a story that will never be resolved at this point no will never be resolved and that's just the way it is and we're we were never going to know 100% what happened in this case. It always boiled down to whether or not you believe women, whether or not you feel that professional athletes are immune to these kinds of allegations, that because they are rich, because they're young, that they should be allowed to do whatever they want. Or simply that you don't believe that person. You know, if you're willing to, like, wrap it up and move on, I guess you're saying that Olio is 100% a liar. Like, she made it all up. And for what? What did she gain? Is she rich now? I, I, you know, was, is the purpose to hurt him? And nothing about this decision was surprising. Like, this is what I expected. Yeah, I mean, I'm glad that the investigation was done because it showed that it can be done. I don't know what... Well, we don't know what they did. Well, sure. <laughs> Like you said, like, I didn't reasonably expect anything earth-shattering here. I expected this result. I mean, we've been begging for the results for months and months now. Everybody has, right? Just tell us something. And it's been radio silence. It was more to hold the ATP to the fire to actually make them do it. 
and have it not be something they said they would and hope it didn't go away. I, di- I really did not expect them to come back and say, well, yeah, the best case scenario was, well, we don't have conclusive evidence, but this has still brought negative attention to our sport and thus we will be suspending him for something or doing one of their <laughs> right. you know their their favorite what what is it called like a a pro protracted suspension oh, time served kind like of a, thing like a retroactive yeah retroactive <laughs> and uh you know, in the past, some of the top men's tennis players have defended him throughout this thing. Roger Federer being one of them. Uh, Novak being another. None of the top guys, save from Annie Murray, have uh, have really been shit about this. So what we're left with is this guy from here on out able to hang his hat on this lie that he's perpetuated that he's won everything in court and everybody's exonerated him and this was a complete fabrication, that's going to take hold now. Mm-hmm. So a lot of commentators and reporters throughout this never never even acknowledged it was happening. But the ones who did, some of them will take this as like, oh, thank God, now we don't have to mention this right? stuff. Now we can you know treat him as any other tennis player uh, until the next piece of bullshit comes out, right? We don't have to have those tennis twitter eyes on our on our every tweet (laughs) right every time we talk about him you know in our mentions no Uh, telling us how can you celebrate this man without any context now we'll be focused on all the other players who are credibly accused of domestic violence i'm not trying to make light of this but the success rate of you know criminal cases about intimate partner violence is not great. And the rate at which survivors of violence report and even go through the process of filing charges is very, very low, as we know. Courts and justice systems around the world are not set up for this, or they're set up in a purposeful way to make it difficult to report. I think we are still stuck. It it wasn't very long ago in North America where intimate partner violence was considered just part of your job as as being married. Uh, It wasn't enough reason to get divorced for a long time. And so I think we're stuck with some of those cultural mores that these things are private matters. It's none of our business. And that's something for them to work out between them. And I think that's what brings us to the Nick Curios case, is that people heard these charges. They now even believe it happened. They just don't believe it was serious enough. So Nick Curios pled guilty and everything about the decision the way the decision was handed down the the actual words that were spoken and written in wrapping up this case tells me that nobody thought this was a serious issue yes so to provide some context about the curious thing he did go to court in uh, ACT the Australian capital territory in Canberra. The magistrates listened to his case. He pled guilty to the common assault charge filed by his ex-girlfriend, Kiara Pasari. The result is that there was no sanction. The charges were dismissed. Initially, his defense tried to argue on mental health grounds that the charges should be dismissed. Uh, They heard from several psychologists The court said he wasn't currently suffering a significant depressive illness, so that defense didn't work. Regardless, the the assault charge was dismissed by the magistrate, Beth Campbell. What actually happened, the, the thing that precipitated this case, is that there was an incident in January 2021 where Nick pushed his girlfriend Kiara to the ground during an altercation as he was trying to leave in an Uber. And he doesn't dispute the facts of this case. Kiara says they even met two days later in a cafe. He expressed remorse, and she recorded that conversation, which Nick did not know at the time. They got back together. There was, you know, the relationship was very rocky and tempestuous in a public way, as many of you probably know. They broke up later in 2021, and she filed charges in December of that year. Magistrate Beth Campbell said that Kyrgios, quote, 
acted poorly in the heat of the moment and that it's to your credit in a way in that you know you were being triggered in some way and you knew you needed to get out of the situation. Which, okay, and she said the actual physical action he took was at kind of the low end of what they consider common assault. She cited the time elapsed since the incident. Let's get back to that. Uh, The publicity and that, quote, it appeared to be a one-off incident. The time elapsed. So the time elapsed between the incident and when Kiara reported it was about 11 months. But they had gotten back together. We know that in these types of abusive relationships, many times partners get back together. Uh, It's difficult to leave. And reporting violence uh, takes time. It doesn't, doesn't always happen that day or the next day. But also, this court case could have happened much sooner had it not been for Kyrgios himself repeatedly trying to get the dates pushed back so that he could continue playing tennis. Well, yes. So as time elapsed, is it between the incident and when she reported? Or is it between the incident and today? Because the court case has been pushed back repeatedly as you said, because of his job. And I just want to add that I am not using the words allegedly anymore to talk about the violence because he did plead guilty in court to what happened. It's just, at this point, it's a matter of the record. And he's subsequently gone on to behave publicly like it's business as usual. Every move from the Nick Kyrgios playbook we've seen in the last couple weeks, just last night, He's responding to somebody tweeting about Sebastian Baez and a good run of form with LOL. Mm -hmm. Totally unprovoked. Nobody was talking about him or to him. This is just his typical behavior. So we've got this guy who says, uses mental illness as, oh, well, drop the charges because I was dealing with a lot of shit and I was using alcohol and drugs and I was in a very dark place. All of which may be true, but his behavior is not really consistent with that and it doesn't really engender a lot of empathy at this point and then you have his bestie kokinakis who is responding to pictures of curious leaving the leaving the court making fun of the fact that he's on crutches and laughing right. and ha but i don't know what about it particularly was funny like him hobbling around on crutches going to his court case for pushing his girlfriend to the ground. Like, I guess that's hilarious. Like, even if the picture was of Kyrgios leaving a basketball game on crutches, that's that's not cute. And then you have the added context that he's leaving the courthouse where he just pled guilty to common assault of his ex-girlfriend, whom presumably Kokonakis has spent, has spent a lot of time with. But we know how they speak about their ex-girlfriends, right? Because we saw that in public about how Kalkanakis banged your girl mate. Mm -hmm. This is how they talk about women. And his girls, of course. They they call them girls. I don't know know what else happened in their relationship. I'm not speculating about that. We know that there was that incident in October of 2021 where the police needed to be called to uh, the hotel that Nick and Kiata were staying at in Adelaide. Apparently they got in an altercation. The police separated them because they were quarantining in the same room. It doesn't, you know, the the magistrate said this appears to be a one-off incident, but the magistrate has no way of determining that, just like I have no way of determining that. I don't know. I It could have been, for all I know. And then there's the emphasis on the consequence to the perpetrator. Hat tip to Shannon Clark. We know how he's being supported, but what about Kiara in this situation? And so you have noted here, wouldn't it be nice if there was restorative justice? Right. So they already have something built in the law where people on the defense side can can cite mental health grounds. And I think that's great. Like, I think that's really important. But is that restorative? Does that actually, how progressive is that? Does it do anything for the survivors, the victims of crimes? Uh, What does justice look like for her? Did the court take this into account? The court took into account the consequences for Nick Kyrgios because he supposedly has a lot to lose. The point is he has a lot. How much will he lose? You know what I mean? What are the steps being taken to support or repair the damage to the victim in this situation? They're not. 
So the court acknowledged that this thing happened, and they said, well, essentially don't do this again. We don't want to, you know, inconvenience you too much, so we're going to drop the charges. But there wasn't really a thought to the person who filed the charges. Right, and it's in keeping with how these cases are viewed by the public and by courts around the world. Yes. Like, what, what, what is the impact going to be on the accused? Even before uh, there's a trial, even before... these things go through court proceedings. That's the very first thing that most people think about. And so where we are at this point is, if you talk about this this case online, you'll get some support and you'll get a lot of people saying, well, it wasn't that serious. Because now the defense is, it can't be, oh, we don't believe her, it didn't happen. The defense is now, oh, he pushed her, It's, it's not a big deal. So, okay, but put that on a sliding scale. Like, at what point At one point, does it become a big deal to you if you were that person, if you were in that relationship? Would you tolerate that? And at, what's, and at what stage does it become a crime? And what will the ATP do now, given that Kyrgios has pled guilty to this? Oh, my dear, they will do absolutely nothing. They gave the blandest statement possible, and you could just feel the relief, the, the exhale of relief coming off of that statement. They're not going to do anything. Maybe, just maybe, it's a bad idea for the sporting world to celebrate male rage. Maybe it is. Maybe This it is. thing that is built into the fabric of men's tennis, that when we watch the the what is it breaking point break point break point yeah. docuseries thing on netflix one of the very first setups was telling the viewers that male rage is men's tennis yes you're documenting the 2022 tennis season and the very first thing you show is john McEnroe screaming and acting a fool and then you feature nikiris in the first episode and so we're we're taught that this behavior on court is entertainment it's what makes him supposedly the biggest draw in tennis around the world and it's needed to sell tennis as a sport and if you're not doing that you're boring you have no passion whatsoever so maybe there is something wrong with celebrating rage i mean can you be a great and entertaining athlete without it i i think you can what's clear to me is that naomi osaka needs to cut ties with this dude (laughs) what what was the thought process here? It was like it was clearly it was mercenary. That's the only thing that explains it. It's that this guy is the future. Uh, this guy is worth a lot of money, and I'm gonna sign him because the charges had already been filed when she signed him. That was December 2021 when the charges happened, and Naomi chose to sign Nick in June of 2022. Mm-hmm. Now, you might tell me that Naomi's team didn't know about them before that, because I think it became public for us uh, around the same time. Do you, I mean, these are like pretty high level business people here. Do they do any sort of vetting or research on the people they're gonna sign? I just, the association for her is toxic. I, I really just can't believe it at this point. We've spent a lot of time talking about these two cases, especially the Zverev case, over the last two years. And to have them both come to this sort of conclusion so quickly, one after the other, in such an unsatisfying way, as far as justice, restorative or otherwise, it's heavy. It's It feels defeating. It, I, I was avoiding this curio story, especially for a while. Uh, I just didn't really want to read about it. And I guess, you know, as I'm not a survivor of domestic violence, like I've, I've never been through this. Imagine what it's like for a survivor of intimate partner violence to see this stuff and see credible evidence, see someone plead guilty, and there be no really uh, financial, civil job-related consequences whatsoever. Or even a condemnation. Right. Even the court that is (laughs) accepting your guilty plea is saying, well, you know, it's really not that bad. It's fine. It's fine. Right. Don't worry about it. You know, it's really not that bad. 
And so what does it say to people who've been through this? You know, not only the violence, right? We've seen these texts between Nick and Kiata where he said, oh, are you going to kill yourself? Like it was a joke. I just, yeah, I realize this is that person's personal life. I just don't know why you would ever want to stand somebody like that. I don't. I really don't. Novak Djokovic will be allowed to play the U.S. Open in 2023 because the United States will change its federal COVID policies, I believe, in April. So he won't be able to play the Sunshine Double, but he will be able to play the U.S. Open in the fall. (laughs) Uh, Last year, Joe told us that the pandemic was over, remember? It's not, by the way. Uh, The U.S. has finally ended its emergency measures. So part of that, part of that, is the border control measures. The bigger part, in my opinion, is ending all of the subsidies for treatment, for testing, and for vaccines. So people who do have some form of insurance will have to pay for these things. Mm -hmm. Your insurance might pay for some of it, but it could still be very expensive if you're not familiar with the U.S. private healthcare system. Just because you have insurance does not mean that you're not paying huge, huge sums out of pocket. And these drug companies now can go charge whatever they want. Exactly. So we are privileged enough here to live in a country, while certainly not perfect, the vaccines are covered by our government health care program. Uh, treatment is covered. Testing is not anymore, unfortunately. But, I mean, the issue here is that this is bad public health policy. But I understand this is a tennis podcast and the, you know, the lead here is that, oh, Novak Djokovic can play the U.S. Open. I really don't care. And, uh, you know, don't tweet this publicly because you will be savaged for it. But like, why? Why do I care Uh, if he plays or not? I'm tired of this this melodrama. Is the tournament worth less if he plays? No, because he's missed a bunch already. He won Australia and it was decidedly worthless. <laughs> like, is Carlos Alcaraz's US Open win uh, less exciting or less important because Novak was there? I don't think so. So he can be there or not. It really, it doesn't bother me either way. What bothers me is really shitty public health policy by the United States. And now this is your moment to shine. <laughs> this Cosmos 25-year deal for Davis Cup segment that we've been delaying and delaying and delaying. Take it away. Yeah, we've punted this many times. On January 12th, the ITF announced that it will end its $3 billion partnership with Cosmos a whole 20 years early. This is after they revamped the Davis Cup in 2018 Uh, The original, you know, the new format, it scrapped kind of the home and away thing. It crammed the quarterfinals into this one week toward the end of the year, all at one site. It did the quarter semis finals in rapid succession. We've seen this the past few years. They didn't provide any reasons as to why it was scrapped, but I think some of those reasons are obvious. Like if however many billions of dollars, what is it, three billion over 25 years... If that sounded too good to be true to you when this deal was first announced, why would the ITF break from it so shortly afterward if it weren't too good to be true? (laughs) Yeah, I think it was. John Wertheim even said, quote, it was an open secret that payments to some players were delayed. The most cursory back of the envelope math screamed that this deal was madness. The ITF clinked glasses and tried to convince everyone otherwise, which is some of the more damning critique that you'll get from John Wertheim. Cosmos has filed a lawsuit against the ITF at the Court of Arbitration for Sport, you know, a breach of contract and all that stuff and damages to their reputation. It should be said that the Davis Cup wasn't exactly in an amazing position before the deal. Because otherwise, why would they agree to this revamp, right? Right. So it was how, struggling. how bad must this be for them to be breaking ties with them now? Yeah. Uh, because this was a struggling, flailing organization mm-hmm. and tournament. They were struggling to attract top players consistently. A lot of times top players would swoop in for one year to win the Davis Cup for their team just to put it on their resume, and, and that was it. Or to add it to the spreadsheets of <laughs> yeah. tennis Twitter devotees. Mm-hmm. 
hosting was uh, could be very difficult logistically and financially for a lot of countries. And not even to say anything about the just the incredible amount of travel across the globe. Tennis is already, you know, not great for climate change as far as the amount of travel it requires people to take. This just added to it. And in this day and age, I, I don't know that for a lot of fans, Davis Cup has that sort of historical import that it always did. When Davis Cup started for, for many years, for half a century, it was four superpowers battling it out. Uh, and there were all these, you know, nationalistic undertones. And so at this point, I don't, I don't know if it has the same gravitas that it once did. It doesn't. <laughs> I mean, for some countries it does. Okay, but we have so many other team events now. <laughs> well. It's it's no longer the one chance you get to compete for your country as a team because you allegedly compete for your country every week mm. with your little flag beside your name. The, the state of the world is just different in 2023 it than it was in 1950. Or 1900, you know? There was drama in the French Federation, as usual. Nicolas Maou said that the new Davis Cup has been a total failure. He called out ITF President David Haggerty and the VP of the ITF, Bernard Giudicelli, who's also the head of the French Federation. Uh, that man is, he is always in something. Giudicelli struck back and he said Maou is ignorant and basically said he was too old to be criticizing the current state of tennis and that it's a good thing that he's retired. Giudicelli was like always in some kind of mess. Saying also, quote, we saved the Davis Cup. Well, that may be, but you've, you've now broken this contract. So that's a mess that if you're so inclined, if you have the bandwidth, continue following. <laughs> because <laughs> There will be more. Money in tennis is kind of a theme that I wanted to talk about. Ahead of the Australian Open, the New York Times did a series of several pieces about uh, the finances of tennis, and they did some before the U.S. Open as well. It's always interesting to me because I feel that tennis is a very underreported sport. The governance and the finances and the business of tennis is very underreported compared to other sports, just because we don't have a lot of dedicated tennis journalists like other major sports do. It's also just harder to keep track of the money when it's so disparate, when it's coming from <laughs> yeah. so many different places, from so many different countries. And so this segment dovetails with this latest, what's the word? This latest offering from the PTPA. Yeah, I guess the latest flurry of activity from the PTPA. The New York Times story talks about a few major players outside of the traditional tennis governing bodies and almost posits them as disruptors, which is kind of interesting because we're talking about major <laughs> private equity firms, billionaires, um, Sinclair Corporation. So not exactly who you think about when you think of disruptors, like in a tech startup sense, but these are people who are coming in and trying to shake up tennis because they feel a lot of money is being left on the table. We hear a lot about how tennis has this massive fan base internationally, which I don't doubt. I do question the numbers a little bit. The PTPA said that tennis has one billion followers. Right. And we see this a lot in tennis is that our metrics are weird. We don't, you know. I didn't realize that SurveyMonkey allowed that <laughs> big of a... Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> Not SurveyMonkey. <laughs> Not even Microsoft Forms. Um <laughs> So, I mean, the tactic, of course, is to say there are so many fans, there is so much revenue being left on the table, and here's how I can take advantage of that. And the thrust of this is that tennis executives, the sport itself, the owners uh, collect roughly $2.5 billion in total revenue each year. This is from the New York Times. But it collects a lot less revenue per fan than other sports do. Tennis players also receive a much smaller percentage of those revenues. And of course, as we know, tennis players have to 
foot all of their own expenses because they're independent contractors. So they pay their taxes, they pay for travel, lodging, coaches, physios, everything. They're not part of a team. So if you are a member of the Los Angeles Lakers, you have physios hired by the team, paid by the team. You have chartered planes getting you from city to city, paid by the team. These are things that you don't even remotely have to think about. And I think that most of us agree that there's a problem here. The tennis is a, a clunky old sport with a clunky old confusing governing structure that players could probably get a, be getting a much better deal than they are. The approaches vary, of course. The PTPA, which is the Professional Tennis Players Association, which made a big splash at the 2020 US Open, is funded by a billionaire hedge fund manager named Bill Ackman, who is a huge tennis fan. He's the founder of Pershing Square Capital Management. He's a pretty famous investor, like in, in financial circles. He's considered an activist investor, and he's a famous short seller. And this made me think of uh, the character in the HBO series Industry, who was kind of that superstar investor. What was the, what's the actor's name? One of the brothers. Yes. His brother is on Transparent. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I forgot his name. But it feels like, you know, that's a kind of a composite character. But Bill Ackman is very much, was at one time a superstar investor, has a lot of money to throw around. He says he has no intention to profit from tennis and that the investment is strictly philanthropic. Jay Duplass. Jay, yes. So they also set up, the PTPA is nonprofit. They set up this parallel for-profit company called Winners Alliance, which raised $26 million in capital. The idea here is to go for licensing agreements, is to allow players to license their images for all sorts of things. Video games, playing cards, which apparently is a big market. I had no idea. Mm. I mean, I had some inkling because I I felt... In the last year that I'd seen trading cards on my Twitter timeline more than I ever have before in my life. And by that, I mean, I had never seen it on my timeline <laughs> right. and I see it all the time. I, I'm so outside of that world. I didn't even know it was still a thing, but apparently it's very lucrative. Uh, they even talked about hotels, you know, branded after players in the future, perhaps uh, a fifth major like they have, I think, in the L. PGA, many that different is play, tours like player owned. Yeah. The LPGA has, the Champions Tour has. Yes. So Ackman said both Ackman and Ahmad Nassar, who was hired as the CEO of the PDPA, they both said we have no intention of creating a separate tour. We're looking to expand revenue to find new ways of making money from these superstar players. And it's. I looked at their presentation, and I would encourage you to do so too. Getting a better proportion of revenue from the traditional tournaments is part of their goal. But there are a lot of other things, right? They're, they're looking at new revenue streams because I don't think they're very optimistic that they're going to get a great deal or that there's a lot of money to, to scatter around to players. Bad Toss on Twitter uh, did a thread on this presentation, which... She kind of inspired me to look through the presentation closer. And so if I, I hope I don't like steal any of your ideas here, but all credit to Bad Toss. I do, I do kind of wonder, like, do they expect to get a good deal from any of the majors and or the ATP or the WTA? Or is the end goal to make actual serious money elsewhere? Like on, on these licensing deals. Um, and if you have this billionaire investor... What is he expecting in return? What is his return on investment? What's satisfactory to him? And what is that compared to what the players will get? It seems to me like this is yet another instance where there are people in suits making money or trying to make money off the backs of tennis players in disproportionate ways. Well, that's what you say. The people funding... (laughs) The PDPA say that they're not looking to make money off this. Bill Ackman just loves tennis. I would say always look skeptically at the way a billionaire spends money. I think it would just be naive not to. It's interesting to me because the PTPA were 
self-styled labor activists at the beginning. And it's clearly not what this is, and that's fine. The, I, I'm genuinely serious. That's totally fine if that's not what this is. Because what this appears to be is actually like an agency rather than a player's union or a player's association. Uh, an agency that is taking the voice of players seriously, but an agency nonetheless. I, right. I'm Okay. So you go to the trading card route. Whose trading cards are going to be licensed and made money off of and for? Right. Not, because the, not the 150 player, right, right. Because the crux of this issue for me has always been how are we going to redistribute the wealth in tennis to better serve the future of the sport and also keep players ranked 100 and above or even 75 and above being able to have viable lasting careers and to put money in their pockets one of the graphics on that presentation from the ptpa showed that oh wow tennis players are the least profited athletes of all the major sports right behind golf and it was like, oh, well, that if you look at that graphic, it's like, they're actually pretty neck and neck. But what you're seeing there is the top-heavy nature of tennis. Because golfers who are ranked in the hundreds, they make hundreds of thousands of dollars every year, mm-hmm. if not over a million. Like, it's, it's just not even comparable. Right. I understand. Like, this is an organization that's trying to force the hand of these old-fashioned you know, the, the big seven in tennis, they're going to, uh, they're not lying, but they are sort of obscuring the numbers a little bit. The The comparison is always with United States-based team sports. So you're, you're comparing yourself to the NFL, the NHL, Major League Baseball. All of these sports have players' unions or players' associations. The players are employees of the teams or of the league, and tennis is very, very different, right? Tennis tennis players are not employees of anybody. They're independent contractors. The governance structure is dispersed. There's no central employer. It's not a fair comparison. The fair comparison is to golf. So if golf is making 22% of revenue as prize money, to me, the goal is to get to 22%. Because these American team sports are not, they're just not a fair comparison, in my opinion. They may change mind. Like maybe the goal is to turn heads with these numbers, to change the minds, and then get down to the real work. But in the long term, those comparisons don't really make sense. And if you are comparing to golf, a breakaway league, like we saw with LIV <laughs> yeah. last year, like we've seen historically in so many sports, not least of which cricket, with Kerry Packer golf. I guess this is something that's happened many, many, many times over the years. In the past, those players who participated in those breakaway leagues were banned. There is a whole generation of West Indian cricketers who never achieved international renown for the West Indies because they they were banned. Right. We're at a place now where the PGA Tour was not in a position to ban those players last year. And... That's a, a direct result of some of their very best and high-profile stars participating in these separate tours. Yes. So the measure of success for the PTPA is really only if you get your big stars to join up. Because so far in the 21st century, I don't see that tennis players have a lot of stomach for labor activism. In the 70s... You know, the 60s and 70s when we were transitioning from the uh, the amateur era to the open era, there were constant boycotts, bans, lockouts, everything. A constant disruption. But now, you know, there was barely, what was there, a murmur about Russian and Belarusian players being banned from Wimbledon? And then when the the leagues, you know, rescinded points from Wimbledon, yeah, there were people complaining, but did anyone boycott those tournaments? I don't see modern tennis players as willing to give that up and correct me if i'm wrong but there seems to be a a disproportionate participation between atp players and wta players it's almost as if wta players see this thing and where it's going as a direct threat to the sustainability and survival of the wta tour that was founded 
on activism. And, you know, that could be our take or their take could just be like they did a quick cost benefit analysis and they were like, meh, not really interested. I'm fine. Because it's like it's almost like you're trading one master for another. You know, you're one of your stated goals is not equitable prize money. So why am I joining? And at the same time, the WTA has been negotiating with CBC Capital Partners for a big influx of cash, $150 million dollars and reportedly a 20% ownership stake. This is still in progress. We don't, it, it hasn't been finalized yet. And the WGA stated goal is to use this cash flow to make prize money equal at joint tournaments. So what I want to know, and what a lot of people want to know is how does this make money for CVC Capital Partners? If you're just going to spend the money, <laughs> you know, you're not spending the money to make revenue. You're just giving it to players. A CVC also wanted to collaborate with the ATP. The ATP wasn't ready. Gaudenzi of the ATP said that more men are starting to understand the value of equal prize money. I don't know if that's true. He said, you just have to show them the business case. <laughs> so the CVC is possibly also speaking with the ATP. So there's that's the state of uh, business in tennis. I know it's your favorite topic. I mean, it's it's one take on it. I don't know how good or exhaustive or extensive it no, is. No, I mean, we're, we're not MBAs, okay? But I, I do think it's important to talk about with commentary attached. Mm -hmm. Quickly, one of your favorite topics. Yes. Uh, doping update. Varvara Lepchenko, who had been given a four-year ban for testing positive for modafinil, which is a banned stimulant, the ban has been reduced to 21 months by the CAS, the Court of Arbitration for Sport. Uh, she appealed. They reduced the ban after a lengthy investigation. We've heard this before, an exhaustive investigation. It was found that the substance, modafinil, was found in a bottle of capsules, which did not have the ingredient printed on the label. It was found in her bag. What I want to know, not to cast dispersions on anyone, how do so many athletes have these mysterious supplements that they take that they bought in Eastern Europe and they don't know what's in it? That sounds very xenophobic to me. Well, Eastern Europe. No, this this particular supplement was from Ukraine. <laughs> yes. Uh, I'm, I'm, meldonium was from uh, Latvia, I believe. I'm, I'm teasing. Yes. The previous tribunal that ruled on Lepchenko said she failed to prove that her use of the substance was unintentional. CAS reduced the ban. I don't know what to think. It, you know, doesn't affect my life. I just like reporting on it. It's interesting to me. Again, I think it's interesting that athletes take things and they uh, they don't know what's in it. Or maybe sometimes they do know what's in it and hope they just don't get caught. I'm not saying that happened in this instance. Uh, that's just for the lawyers. I'm an independent contractor <laughs> of the body serve. That's true. I cannot be named in a lawsuit. <laughs> I don't think that's the law. <laughs> you may all have heard about the devastation caused by uh, this horrific earthquake last week. In Turkey and Syria. Actually, a listener of ours, Gukalp, asked that we talk about this on the podcast and pointed out a few charities that you can go to uh, if you are willing and able to help. The two are called Akut and Abap. Sorry for pronunciation, I know. We've retweeted it on our BodyServe Twitter. Uh, please consider helping or, or doing your own research into charities in the region. Uh, the devastation is just really unbelievable. Moving on to something uh, a little bit lighter. I did want to talk about the Grammys. We were going to record on Monday when it was fresh. And I am sort of glad that I've had days to digest what happened. Yeah, you'd have been too hot for that. Oh, man. I mean... You know, we are so used to Beyonce losing the Album of the Year Grammy. Lemonade was the true knife, knife in the heart. A Renaissance is a totally different kind of achievement from Beyonce. It's exploring new genres. It's a, a sonic experience from front to back. Art is subjective. Listen, it's, it's subjective. We have our favorites. But the fact that Beyonce lost to... Harry's house, of all things, after we had to sit through that performance, 
it just reeked of mediocrity to me. Beyonce has to be gracious. She has to stand and she has to applaud because if she didn't, what would they call her? What would they say about her? Right. The Grammys, the Scammies, the Shammies are a deeply unserious organization. I And not agree. only that, not only that, it is run by, well, a, a younger black man this time. But the oh. voting is done by quite a few octogenarians. Right, and an age doesn't, it doesn't have to have an impact. The impact is that, the impact is ignorance. It's voters who haven't listened to the material and who have the impression that Beyonce has been feted enough. Well, so I, we're tired of it. You, you cut me off oh, there. sorry. Not only are they older, but they're white and they are decidedly... And we know this because of that Vulture article. They are decidedly and willfully ignorant. And they're lazy. Well, you are a Grammy voter and you say, well, you know, I just don't, I don't care enough to listen to all the music. Art is subjective. But if you're not even bringing yourself to the table to take in the art, why are you voting? It makes, (laughs) it makes no sense. And so... This is what we've seen time and time and time again. We've seen it with two Mariah Carey album cycles, arguably her two greatest, Daydream at the 96 Grammys and The Emancipation of Mimi at the 2006 Grammys. Right, which would have been a perfect opportunity for the Grammys to say, hey, we're relevant. This is a great story. This comeback story. Mm -hmm. She's recorded a really important album. Up to that time, she'd only won two Grammys, one of which was for Best New Artist at the very start of her career. And so some 15, 16 years later, pulling up to that Grammy event, she's handed three more. So to this day, she still only has five. And that's just indicative of how little cultural import this organization has and how little we should pay them any mind. Yes. Uh, Multiple things can be true, right? I can agree that the Grammys are not very serious, that they make a lot of terrible decisions, but also it's insulting, right? So when people get on Twitter afterward and say, oh, I knew this was going to happen. I don't know why you people get upset. The Grammys are so stupid. It's like, okay, thank you so much for your contribution. Um, we're all stupid. Yep, I agree. Uh, what are you adding here? Just because these are not f- four black artists doesn't mean that they're not allowed to want it or their fans aren't allowed to want it for them. Or yeah. that they don't feel compelled to play the game. Sure. Because what sure. would Beyonce look like if she removed herself from consideration, if she decided to not show up at all? But truly, how many more instances of this can we, as a listening public, stomach? As as artists, how much more can they stomach? We know Mariah has taken the stance of trashing the Grammys <laughs> any <laughs> chance she gets uh-huh. publicly. Maybe Beyonce goes that, that way as well. I, I doubt it. Beyonce is so... Oh God, she's so withdrawn these days. She's so controlled. She's quiet. You know, and part of that was she was sensitive because people made fun of the way she talked or the the answers she gave in interviews when she was younger uh but the image is on lock like she's above it all is the the strategy you know and so she's gracious when she loses i don't know maybe like maybe she does not care it's very possible it's like not even a consideration for her she was visibly moved when she won the record-breaking grammy to, to break the record of the most awarded artist. But, my God. I f- Fans would take back a lot of those Grammys to get an album of the year. <laughs> you know, I don't know what she thinks. Right, but you... You bill this awards show as likely a crowning moment for Beyonce. You, you tease it. Trevor Noah is teasing it. The Grammys is advertising it. To my mind, they even change album, the, the sequence of the awards yeah, to have an album of the let's year. Let's talk about that. 
awarded last mm-hmm. when that was never the case to my recollection because record of the year used to be like the best picture of the right. grammys and so they know that we want renaissance to win and they tease it tease it tease they even go so far as to have this abomination of a focus group on the awards show dear god it was mind blasting i mean i don't know how long the show went on because i turned it off after harry's house won but there was another performance after that that i think jay-z was in yeah i did not see that i mean so they knew what they were doing (laughs) and to this day beyonce only has one grammy for one of the big three awards of the 33 that she's won only one of them is for song of the year which is what single ladies either record or song of the year yeah for single ladies um like come on the uh, vulture story i I read about it compared it to in 2020 they put best actor last at the oscars for the first time because it was i mean it was expected that chadwick boseman was going to win it like clearly they moved it to the last award for a reason and then anthony hopkins won from his house in Wales, because he did not travel to the ceremony due to COVID. Love Anthony Hopkins, by the way. No shade about him. But again, like you move an award to the end because it's expected that a black artist is going to win it, and then you don't give them the award. It's it's weird. It's just weird, man. And and, and no I, disrespect to Bonnie Raitt. And oh, there, there are people out here, there are children out here who are thinking they're cute and tweeting stuff like who is who who is bonnie Raitt? google is right there you're just showing your entire ignorance like don't don't be john McEnroe. don't say you don't know somebody uh i can't make you love me something to talk about iconic songs and those are just the most popular of her hits i think what what really burns me about this is that i beyonce is an artist who cares about albums she's She's evolved into an artist who wants people to listen to their album start to finish and puts a lot of thought into the way that it's crafted. And that's how I like to listen to music. I'm, I'm a completist, right? Like I, when I listen to SOS by SZA, I start at the beginning and I never randomize. The same with Anti by Rihanna. Like That's just how I like to consume music. And artists actually put a lot of craft into the way that they build albums. It's not just a collection of singles. So I don't know. I just, I'm not confident that Harry's house is is that girl. Now, had Beyonce lost to Bad Bunny, I would have been much less upset. Mr. Bunny. Much less. You have Happy Valley on here, which has been a, a favorite of ours for years. Well, well, we, a... we watched the finale <laughs> right after that Grammy, <laughs> Grammy yeah. scammy situation. Wow. wow. I tweeted something... Uh, I retweeted something last night and Vikesh on Twitter asked that we make sure to talk about Happy Valley on the next podcast. <laughs> Timely tweeting on his part. Mm-hmm. What a show. I mean, how many shows can take that long off in between seasons and come back and be like, well, we're just going to gonna give you a final series here and we're just going to kill it. And the actresses? <laughs> wow. Sarah Lancashire... And Siobhan Finneran, <laughs> that one scene where Catherine has found out what Claire is up to with our Ryan <laughs> and entraps her on the phone into a lie and Claire knowing she's lying and then Catherine walking into that cafe to confront her. That's one of the best things I've ever ever seen on tv (laughs) it's just really good writing and it gives these actresses so much to play with you may know if you watch downton abbey we know siobhan finneran as o'brien devious scheming lecherous disgusting (laughs) baby killing o'brien oh my god the evil ladies made o'brien and she plays such kind of a you know a pathetic but compassionate character on this show it's so different Sarah Lancashire actually played Julia Child recently in a series. I can see that. Yeah. uh, This Happy Valley made James Norton a star. I had to Wikipedia in between. I mean, it's been years, right? I thought the series was over. I did not remember what happened. Uh, I remembered that he tried to burn up that child on a boat. And now that child is 16, 17 years old. R. Ryan? Yes. 
it is a it's a series that really softens the blow of copaganda let me tell you <laughs> yeah so if, if you haven't for some reason watched happy valley yet seek it out because it's it's good it's really really good that brings us to the end of episode 292 hit us up with your addresses don't delay <laughs> don't do i mean we'll we'll still get a postcard out to you if you delay sure but if please... you're in june you're like oh hey i forgot we'll obviously do it is it ideal no and if you're thinking oh i don't want them to go through the trouble of doing one do it we want to write you a postcard yeah just do, do it. it just do it my name is jonathan you can find me on twitter at tennis underscore john and i'm james at elliot jmr two l's two t's this is The Body Serve. Everything Body Serve related can be found at linktree.com slash thebodyserve. If you enjoy the show, know that we've ceased begging for money. We will uh, pivot to begging for reviews. <laughs> so if you enjoy the show and you've yet to give us a lovely five-star review on whatever platform you choose, please do so. Thanks for listening. Till next time. Thank you very much. <laughs>